millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. On this episode, I speak with Dr. Leanne Whitney, a transformational coach who blends East and West philosophy and is the author of Consciousness in Jung and Patanjali. This was a really fun conversation where we go into what consciousness meant to these two mythical figures of psychology and yoga and what awakening to our true nature means to us in our everyday lives and how that might transform the culture that we live in and ultimately leave for future generations. This podcast is supported solely by listeners like you, and if you appreciate these kind of conversations and want them to continue without advertising or a paywall, please consider supporting it by becoming a Patreon member or leaving a one-time donation via PayPal. You can go to medicinepathpodcast.com, click support to find out more. Another way to support the podcast is to book a yoga or coaching session with me. I work with people all over the world via Zoom or Skype, helping them develop a life-supporting and life-enriching yoga practice. Another aspect to my work that is emerging more and more is transformational coaching, helping people to move past the self-limiting beliefs and patterns that are holding them back from living the authentic and fulfilling life that they know is possible and that they deserve. You can find out more about all my offerings at medicinepathhealingarts.com. Okay, that's all for now. Please sit back and enjoy this conversation with Dr. Leanne Whitney on The Medicine Path. Yeah. 
I gotta say, uh, I enter into this conversation with a little bit of trepidation because we're going to be talking about Carl Jung and Patanjali, who are two kind of mythic towering figures in psychology and yoga. And I know there are a lot of people out there who know a lot more about those two figures than I do. And uh, so I'm always a little nervous getting into these things where um, people have like really strong ideas about uh, these different viewpoints. But I thought you'd be a really great person to explore this with um, because for the past number of years, I've been interested in this intersection of yoga and psychology. And I think you first came to my attention when I saw an interview with you where you're talking about the book that you wrote on consciousness in Jung and Patanjali. And uh, so I started to take this online yoga sutra study course with you. And it really started to bring some things together for me in a way that, uh, that I hadn't experienced before. Like I, when I first studied the yoga sutra, it was with an Indian teacher and he gave me a really good background on Sankhya, the foundational philosophy on which the Yoga Sutras are written. And those, I think, that understanding of Sankhya provides a, a good foundation for uh, understanding the context of the Yoga Sutras. But it, I found it actually a little confusing as a Westerner. And so maybe as a foundation for understanding the Yoga Sutras, I kind of feel that psychology is more helpful for, for the Western mind. And I think you're someone that weaves those two studies together very well. So I wanted to explore this with you and uh, just kind of get into it. Ready to go, ready to go. And, and I'd just like to add, I, I hear you um, about the towering figures of, of Jung and Patanjali. I mean, there's obviously a breadth and depth of scholarship um, you know, in both of those, those figures. And, and they are very important to, um, well, many disciplines of study really. So, uh, there's many people who have, um, set ideas and should we say almost even like fundamentalist ideas. And we do want to present them and represent them as accurately as possible, but also now we're in present time. And I think it's about the lived experience of the teachings and, and best, you know, em, embodying or understanding to our own lived experience, perhaps, you know, what these gentlemen were bringing forward and how applicable they are today. Yeah. And, and kind of on the other end of that spectrum, I, I don't want to get into that place that I, that I, I see sometimes where uh, this kind of modern idea that you think that everything is open to interpretation like I do want to try to be as true as I can to what they actually wrote and, and thought because uh, I've heard Jung and both Jung and Patanjali interpreted in so many vastly different ways uh, that sometimes I think if you just go with the modern interpretations or the personal interpretations, you can kind of lose the, the real person underneath all of that who did have some clear ideas about things. Right. Um, so I guess it's finding a balance, like what's actually relevant and meaningful to you in this present moment, but not stray too far from what they are actually saying. 
I 100% agree. Exactly. Because what we want to do is figure out what they were saying. Is it applicable? Is it applicable now? And because, you know, these mythic figures, we can tend to idolize them and put them up on pedestals. And uh, that might not be, may or may not be appropriate. So, so I think trying to absolutely correctly understand them and then say, is it applicable in our lived world now? And if so, great. What, what are the teachings that we can take away? Yeah, exactly. And that's maybe another thing that happens is that they are <clears throat> such prominent, uh, inspire, awe-inspiring figures in some ways. Um, but Jung was doing a lot of his writing almost 100 years ago, and Patanjali you know, maybe 2,500 years ago. And I think sometimes people can, like you said, can get fundamentalist about those ideas and like concretize them. And if those two figures had lived, I'm sure that their views on things would have changed over time in their own experience and understanding. So, okay, we're going to play a balance here. Respecting what we've got, uh, to go by in terms of their, their writing and, and everything. <clears throat> and then also what it means to us in this modern world. So <clears throat> I think the big first important question here is the title of your book. And I guess for me, I just want to get a little bit of background on when you first got interested in this topic of consciousness. The topic of consciousness um, almost rained down on me uh, in one particular incident. I was in a yoga room at, at the time, um, and I had what's known in the religious studies literature as a pure consciousness event. I had finished my asana practice, and I was actually on my way out of the room, and I... It, and this event happened out of the middle of nowhere. It wasn't something I asked for. I hadn't even ever been exposed to um, yoga philosophy. Just the asana I knew made me feel good. I had done some meditation. Um, and in that moment, which was a moment, um, seconds, a fraction of a second, um, I knew without a shadow of a doubt that consciousness is all there is. Now, prior to that moment, I had never stopped to even contemplate consciousness. I had read Emerson and Thoreau and um, Hess and um, different authors in, in high school and college, but um, really this, this idea of consciousness, the nature of consciousness, my deep interest in it, and, and then therefore my path into scholarship happened after that event. Can you talk a little bit about that event and what occurred, what your experience was? Sure. Um, so I had done an asana practice. I, this was 2000 and, it's either 2000 or 2001. Um, 2000, I think. Um, 1998, I had begun um, asana and meditation. And by January of 2000, I began like a daily practice. So 98 to 2000, I practiced a little bit here and there. Um, but January of 2000, I committed to a, a pretty much a daily practice. And 
I, all right, I'm going to, I need to give the backup if that's okay. So I, there was this yoga studio in Santa Monica. It was donation based. And I showed up to a yoga class. It was an evening class and I unrolled my mat. I had just moved to LA the year before. And so this was my first time now practicing in a studio and someone walked past me and my spine shook. Mm. And in my head, I said, I'm going to have some sort of process with that guy. I thought it was the assistant because he went and he was opening the windows in the studio. Well, come to find out it was the yoga teacher. Who was it? Because I don't feel it's right for me to say the person's name. The person does know about this incident, but I don't actually feel it's right for me to reveal him. Okay, you can tell me after the interview because <laughs> I, I have some friends uh, who taught in Santa Monica, and I'm just wondering if it maybe was my yoga teacher. <laughs> maybe, yeah. <laughs> who, who woke me up in some ways? Yeah, I just don't. I don't feel comfortable <laughs> revealing uh, his name in public. Um, That's cool. So, okay. So, so I practiced. It was about probably about six, seven months, and again, it was the end of the practice, and I was on my way out. And I looked into his eyes on my way out of the room and it was a flash of light that seemed to appear. And that pure consciousness event was in that moment. Mm -hmm. and and so when you, when you say pure consciousness event, can you give me a sense of what that experience is like? Yeah. Like my mind completely settled. It was an absolute stillness. And again, it was, a, it was a flash of light that seemed to appear and an all-knowing awareness that consciousness is all there is. Eternal, absolute, arose. I want to say embedded in that moment. Mm. It's hard to talk about. This is one of the characteristics of those kind of moments. They're ineffable. They're yeah. impossible to describe. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Thanks for yeah. trying. Thanks for trying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I've spent the next, you know, whatever it is, 18 years, really, and through my scholarship and writing the book um, as a means of, uh, of our, unpacking that experience and broadening it out, merging it with my everyday world. Yeah, and, in integrating and it. I, Integrating it like we have to do with any kind of peak experience. Um, so before that, were you interested in psychology at all? I wasn't. I mean, I had taken it in high school, you know, um, and I liked it there, but it, it wasn't something that I had thought about studying. I was actually making films at the time. Hmm. So I was expressing myself artistically and... Uh, I made one film called The Fire Within, and I w embarked on a second film about the evolution of human consciousness after that pure consciousness event. But as I was making the film and cutting it, I sort of just got swept up into um, getting a doctorate and studying depth psychology, and therefore uh, consciousness studies very deeply. Hmm. So I'm interested, after that pure consciousness experience, were you drawn to look deeper into 
yoga and the spiritual paths or was the psychology path the, the next thing that came up for you? They both arose together uh, within sh a short amount of time after that event. Someone, uh, my close friend actually, gave me a copy of Carl Jung's Memories, Dreams, Reflections. I was in, in England at the time and I read it on the flight home. Like I just, you know, um, soaked up Jung from that point. Then I got the collected works and began reading the collected works. And then also right around the same time, I was exposed to Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. So they both came into my world right around the same time. And I studied, started studying the texts on my own before I went into a degree program. Mm -hmm. And so immediately, were you already starting to compare their two viewpoints on consciousness? I can't say that comparison arose until probably about six or seven years later. Like I was living with both. There's a deep resonance with Jung because he's a Westerner and because he had had these deeply mystical experiences. So um, I was probably drawn to him in the way that many people are, are drawn to him, I would imagine, from that mystical perspective. And of course, I was in a yoga asana room and practicing yoga. So then I'm drawn to Patanjali because I'm, I'm wanting to get the deeper aspects of, of yoga. It wasn't until I really started the academic program that the comparison started to be made. Mm. And, and I was actually finding limitations with Jung at that point. Mm. I began to find limitations in, in the Jungian viewpoint. And so then I was like, well, hmm, because they're, they're saying many similar things here. And Jung, um, of course, studied the East and studied yoga. And he actually made claims where his capital S self was the same as the self as presented in um, Hindu cosmology and, and Indian philosophy. But it's an erroneous matchup actually. Hmm. So when you're talking about consciousness, is that what you're referring to is the capital S self in Jungian psychology and yoga? Um, well, so those capital S selves are different now in yoga philosophy, consciousness or pure consciousness is represented by a term Brahman which also means God or the absolute and the capital S self. Now, the consciousness of Brahman, it's, it's reality with a capital R almost, like being, it's pure being. We got to put capitals on everything in English, right? Just to differentiate <laughs> it from the everyday stuff. <laughs> right. I show, show greater impact, I guess. Capital um, R reality. So that's like the totality like every, we're talking about everything, not just your everyday mundane reality, but everything seen and unseen. Right. It's absolute. It's not, it's not sort of a, a relative concept. It, it, it's the reality of, of being. And again, Jung in his research compared his capital S self to, to Brahman, um, but Brahman allows for no metaphysical splitting of reality. It, it is pure consciousness. It cannot go unconscious. Mm. 
And Jung's self has both conscious and unconscious elements to it. So um, in this East-West comparison, I sort of met that dead end there. Others before me have met that dead end there where you're trying to see what, you know, where, where are they equal? Where was Jung um, correct in his interpretation of Indian philosophy? And it breaks down right there because for Jung, his God is unconscious and human beings are um, making God conscious, so to speak. And I'll say again, in Indian philosophy and potentially yoga is one of the six orthodox uh, Hindu philosophies, consciousness, it's the ontological reality, the reality of being by its very nature, it can never go unconscious. It is the, it's the ground Mm -hmm. from which everything arises. So quote unquote, unconsciousness Blindness, a term potentially uses as avidya, not wisdom, not pure vision, can happen in the human perceptual system, in cognition, but the ground can never go unconscious. And there's a real beauty in that because that is ultimately what we surrender into through our yoga practices. The integration is into that ground. Um and we don't get that in the Jungian model. So when Jung's talking about, like when Patanjali, let's just use this term, uh, when Patanjali might say that we're unconscious, we're unconscious of the totality of reality. There's aspects of life that we don't perceive because of our uh, mental conditioning and our, our own limitations defined by our ego in order maybe to make... Uh, life uh, more practical and livable or something. We have to kind of limit ourselves in some ways. Otherwise, it's just too much to be effective in the world, you know, I, I would say. You would say Patanjali would say that? Well, I'm, no, I'm kind of interpreting. I'm just getting at the point where when we're talking about unconscious uh, in Jung and Patanjali, we're maybe talking about two different things that... Patanjali's avidya is us being unconscious of the totality of of life, of reality. And that's one of the limitations that we want to overcome so that we experience life in its in its fullest, every aspect of life. Now, when Jung is talking about unconscious, he's talking about the unconscious, correct? Both. I mean, he's talking about the shadow, um, human beings, unconsciousness of, let's say, wholeness or the totality. And then he has something called the collective unconscious, which is, yeah, it has more of an ontological um, sense to it. So it isn't just about how we know the world or um, what's happening in our knowledge base, but it it has a bit of... um, gravitas to it beyond just human knowing the unconscious right. like yeah there's substance yeah. there's substance yeah. and material in the unconscious um so when he's saying that that conscious encompasses the totality he is acknowledging that there is a a greater reality that we don't normally perceive Jung is yeah. saying that there's a greater ra- reality a- absolutely so, a- absolutely, so, they're they're in a they're in a lot. Both Patanjali and Jung are 
they're in alignment in their process, so to speak, that we want to take um, what we're aware of and integrate what we're unaware of into our awareness so that there's there's lots of let's say material or um, perceptions that we are unaware of and through the process of Jung's individuation or through Patanjali's yoga process we're going to use those processes to take what we're unaware of and integrate it into awareness so they're definitely in alignment there um, but but through again through Jung's vision we human beings are making God conscious through that process. For Patanjali, consciousness is, is the reality of being. It's the ground. The knowledge is structured in it. So human beings can become aware of that, but it, we are not, in retrospect, making God conscious. Hmm. I seem to have heard this idea uh, from an Indian perspective that... I, Correct me if I'm wrong, but I seem to remember hearing a story, a kind of creation story from the Indian tradition that says that that God created us in order to reflect back its, itself. And that's one of the functions of humans having a consciousness is that we're able to do that. And so it's like a way for God to know itself. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> the re reflection part, for sure. And and let's also say um, Indian philosophy, right? It's it's so it's so broad, and there's so many streams and so mm. many different schools of thought, and they are not all in agreement. Mm, yeah, they are okay. absolutely. They they all um, might agree on Brahman, you know, as the ontological reality, as the reality of being, but the the way they um, describe. Uh, the physical world or those that process of knowing will be different. So, so um, Jung may be in alignment with other schools of Indian thought, just not Patanjali. He, he might, but again, if Brahman is consciousness and pure consciousness and it's being and Jung's self is unconscious, he, he will never be in alignment with Vedanta or, or the Upanishadic tradition. Hmm. Because, again, that being is consciousness, and Jung does not make that claim. Hmm. Is that because he, he, that he was raised as a Christian, do you think? It puts that kind of limitation on him, that he just can't even comprehend of a God that is... Uh, always conscious and can be nothing other than consciousness? I would say possibly, and also looking through that. Um, so it was Protestantism. Uh, the Swiss Reformed Church is what Jung grew up in. And um, this idea of Jesus and, and, and suffering and the embeddedness of, of suffering in the whole process of, let's say, religious experience, whether he could see beyond that. Because in, again, in Jung's theories, healing can never happen. It, it, he doesn't see the end to human suffering. His vision doesn't see an end to human suffering. Human suffering must always remain. Now, Patanjali and yoga, just like Buddhism, they, you know, 
the vision is that we can have a healing to suffering by changing the way that we perceive. Hmm. So I do think absolutely religion played a factor there. And I want to say also his culture and time played a factor in it because he was immersed in the philosophy of the unconscious. It had been around only within the century, I believe, um, before his birth and around that time. So it greatly impacted him. And science, even though Jung loosely held to the, the, the scientific method of subject-object discovery, he knew there was limitations there, but he didn't step outside of it completely. And in Patanjali's path, there's a radical empiricism where all projections are retrieved. And so we see below all, all contents of consciousness. Jung, for, well, well, I'm going to say for whatever reason, although we do know the reasons, there's a couple places where you can find in his text where he says he has fear of, um, giving up his foundation for the second time. Now he had a break with Freud really early on in his career. When he was young, he was seen as the heir to Freud's throne, so to speak. And those two scholars had a rift and a schism and that greatly impacted Jung very early on in his career. And he suffered greatly because of that. That was when he went into his confrontation with the unconscious. And he had many years where, um, I believe it's correct to say he didn't really work. I do think he taught a little bit at the university, but he, a, a lot of his time was spent in con confronting the unconscious and contemplation. So later on in his life, there's a letter that he writes. Um, you can find it. I think it's in volume two. And he, he's writing it to a woman he had met years earlier in some East-West forums. And you know, he talks about, I don't, I don't want to pay that price again of giving up the foundation that I already have. So when we look at Young over and over and over again, what ends up bubbling to the surface is he never gets below culture. So he doesn't get below what, what I want to say is some ideology again, of an ivory tower or humans constructing knowledge. So if we want to look at this through the lens of yoga psychology, that the non-stealing aspect of the yamas, you cannot steal consciousness. The moment you try to, to, to take it and own the knowledge, you are going to send your culture and your society down a very, very slippery slope. And that was one area where, where Jung didn't... Um, he couldn't see into that. So he stuck with it. And I believe that's part of what is the new path or the new road of us grappling right here, right now in this moment of this East-West dialogue and saying yoga psychology is ultimately about seeing through all of culture. It's not to say that you can't have a culture or that, um, all the contents that dance in front of our eyes shouldn't, shouldn't be a variety. It, it, it's not about making something um, a blanket, stagnant vision, 
but the seer must be clear. And if the seer is a mess in its culture and can't see beyond the culture, then there will be a problem in the psychology. Mm-hmm. It, it will not, it, it, it cannot lead human beings to suffering because it's embedded in its cultural patterns, which is a noise floor. Mm. Well, going, going back to Jung and his inability to, to throw away that firmament of his upbringing, uh, Christianity, I think that's a, a, a issue for a lot of Westerners is the ability to go beyond that kind of personal image of God. Uh, and I even see it in the bhakti yoga tradition. Some people can get really hung up maybe early on in their development or their exploration on the deities. And what I've always gotten from yoga is that you need to go beyond the deity. You need to go beyond the form to what the deity is representing just an aspect of. And I think that's really hard for us Westerners. Like I know myself, someone who just dabbled in Christianity early on, Every time I hear the word God, I still got to push aside that image of the bearded white dude, you know, like it's still in there. It's almost like it's been encoded in my DNA. And I wonder if this is why Jung, when he talked about yoga, he said that there must be a Western yoga that has its foundation in Christianity because it is so embedded in our minds, in our psyches. But it is so different. So, so Jung also is, you know, was influenced by Kant, and he he's neo-Kantian, so so to speak. Um, so that idea of direct experience. Let's see how I can articulate this, because Jung was definitely pointing people towards direct experience. But you could never know. God was still some form of an other, even though he places God in the psyche. I mean, these are his quote unquote genius moves in his psychology. He puts God right in the human psyche. However, there was still elements that you couldn't know that stayed outside, outside of, of human knowing. Whereas yoga psychology is like, you're it. And so that heretical piece also, I think, might be where you're pointing maybe indirectly, but Jung to to claim, right? I am God. If you do that through a Judeo-Christian perspective, people call you a heretic and they, you know, put you up on a cross and burn you. If you don't say that in Hindu philosophy, people are like, oh, you're confused. If you don't know that you're a God, you see what I mean? There's very, it's very, very different outlook and very, very different takes on what happens at the level of embodiment? Atman equals Brahman. There's an equation between those terms. Whereas I am God through a Judeo-Christian lens, it is it is blasphemous. That is just, you cannot say that. And I, I think Jung also um, danced around that that issue for sure. Yeah. So why do you think that he thought that a Western yoga needed to include or be founded on Christianity? It's a great question. Um, I mean, I can tell you why 
why he one of the reasons why he didn't fully accept yoga was he believed that Eastern intuition had overreached itself. But that was something that was based on, it sounds like, his own limitations. Like, if he talked about direct experience, I think that if he had a real pure consciousness experience, to use your phrase, that it's kind of undeniable and that it's going to shake the the firmament, especially when it's a kind of Judeo-Christian foundation where God is separate. Um, like, you have that experience, and it really it shakes that up quite a bit. And I don't know if there's ever going back after that kind of experience. And so I just wonder if he was just limited by his own lack of experience. Like, I know he, he kind of explored yoga, but I don't know how much he actually practiced it. Right. It's a very good question. And that's something I approach also very briefly in the book. We know that he did the asana practices at times, especially when he was going through certain um, emotional trials in his life. He would practice yoga to calm himself down. I believe there is uh, some documents located at Harvard University where there, these are notes. This is unpublished material from Young where he talks about silence, but you don't actually find, you know, Patanjali's second sutra is yoga is the restraint of the modifications of the mind stuff. I mean, being in silence is what we could say the invitation towards yogic realization. Jung's individuation path does not have silence threaded into it in that way so that question of what kind of experience Jung had in the realms of yoga is very valid purely because you don't see silence come to the forefront like you do when you're reading an Upanishad or you're reading you know deeply into what Patanjali is pointing towards yeah that like merging into this vast spaciousness that's that's like the whole thing <laughs> right. And Jung loves the phenomena. Mm. I mean, he loved working with the collective unconscious and dreams and symbols. And if we could say he just didn't want to let go of the phenomena to, to drop into the seer. Yeah, he, right? yeah, he stayed yeah. in the realm of the scene. He stayed in the realm of the contents. That seer that is the, the I want to say the background from the, you know, and I'm saying it very loosely through the perspective of absolute subjectivity. He, he didn't want to surrender into that for the reasons that we're already mentioning that the, what happened after Freud and he didn't want to lose his roots again. And he was very, very tied you know, a long line of pastors tied into Christianity, didn't want to let it go and release it. So, well, you kind of touched on it. Didn't he um, have this period where he, like, let's say what I've heard is that he kind of lost his mind for a while. And out of that came his mystical red book and things like that. Um, so maybe there was just a fear of completely letting go of his ego because he was afraid he might go completely mad. I don't know, speculating, but. Um, no, if actually the opening page of the Red Book, uh, he 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 says, um, and it and it's and it's beautiful. And I mean, look, I, you know, in every way, Young 
I love to work with him because there's so much value in looking at him. And even if we're looking at the limitations, you know, with all respect to his path and his process and all he endured at that time in, in his life and his culture in order to do what he did to make headway um, into bringing science and religion together. I mean, it was an enormous task and an enormous undertaking when science and religion had been so split through the Western Enlightenment. But right in that introduction on that first page, he says, this material flooded forth and it threatened to break me. Hmm. Now, breaking that tight psychological atom where one has built a constructed level of identity is necessary, imperative to break into the cosmic mind through yoga philosophy. You must break that psychological atom. And right, over and over again, when you read Jung through different books and different aspects, one can pick up on the fact that he 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 couldn't let that go. Mm. Well, when you talk about his um, his love of the phenomenon and active imagination and symbols and things like that, I immediately think of tantra. It sounds like if Jung was going to be a yogi, he would have been a tantrika. You know, um, really loving the juiciness of the duality of the interplay of the polarities and, and all of that. You know, so maybe he's more like a, a Hatha Tantric yogi rather than a Raja yogi, you know, someone willing to just to completely let go of all that. He's like, no, I'm quite happy to be in the play and in the, in the Leela of, of life. And there's like a lot of juiciness there and there's a lot of kind of growth and expansion that can happen within that without completely letting go. Uh, yes, but couldn't we say, though, that all paths of yoga aim to capital S self-realization? So even though one is using Tantra as the path, that ultimate samadhi, the absorption or reabsorption even, is still the aim, if you will. Yeah, and, and possibly if he would have just stuck with the Hatha Yoga, he would have just had that experience spontaneously like you did in that in that yoga class. You know, where you're kind of quote unquote just doing asana, but whew, wow, what happened? <laughs> and that how that kind of switch gets flipped is still a, a bit of a mystery to me. But I know that if you if you do the asana and especially the pranayama practices, it will crack you open at unexpected times. And you might be practicing, you know, every day, just diligently doing your practice. And then three o'clock in the morning, you wake up and you're in this completely different space. Uh, so it can happen quite unexpectedly, but there's something about the consistent practice that unlocks something in us. You know, and we could talk about it as Kundalini awakening or the breaking of the Grantis or, or whatever, you know, people have tried to describe it as, as what the mechanism is. But there's just something to it. If you engage in these energetic practices, something will open in you. Yes, absolutely. And one way I also like to frame it, it's the revelation of true nature. So we're already, I mean, we're it. We're, so, so. And again, through Jung's lens, it's a lens of becoming, but 
through through Patanjali, the Upanishadic tradition, that being, that ground, we are it. So the practices, if they're doing anything, are clearing the distortion away, the clearing the noise floor, so that 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 truth of the reality of, of true nature of pure consciousness reveals itself. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Like I, I like to think of it as more of an unfolding process, you know, which is a becoming. Um, but without that mm, revelatory pure consciousness experience, it's unclear as to what we're becoming. And if we think about, trying to transform ourselves without that as the ground or the target, we have, we can maybe fall into the trap of trying to become something that, you know, maybe it's someone that we admire, like some kind of ideal that we put in front of ourselves. And that's kind of like a false idol that we're trying to become because then we're not actually becoming more ourself. We're becoming something else that we've idealized. And so I think for that transformative like for us to be involved in transformation and that becoming, we need to be clear on the target. And the only way I can see that that happens is through a a revelation experience, whether that's through yoga or for me, plant medicines have been really helpful in revealing that and making it really clear what the target is. Okay. This is actually who I am, what I am. Everything else is just getting in the way of that, is is shrouding that. And so it's a matter of in the daily life noticing, oh, I'm not acting in a way that's in alignment with that. You know, that's some kind of residue from past experience that keeps showing up. And so, okay, looking at that, but always having a reference point. You know, and we call that reference point, I guess, truth with a capital T. It is what it yeah. is, and what and it is seems to be the foundation for for everyone because it's all always described in the same way. You know, it's something I've been thinking about. This question in me, okay, so my idea of of truth, of absolute ground of being, how can we know for sure that it's the same as what you experienced? And, and the thing I came to is, well, there's nothing actually to describe. So if it actually was empty of image, uh, word, symbol, then by default, it is the same thing. You know, but if we're describing something and we're putting, uh, like, conditions on it or something, well, then it's probably not the same thing that we're talking about here. Do you, is that clear? Well, yeah. I mean, I think, see if, see if I'm picking up on what you're saying here. It's like the difference between Nirguna and Saguna Brahman. Nirguna Brahman, like you're just not going to say anything about it. It's beyond anything to do with the attributes. So you, that, and that's where the ineffable nature comes about. You, you, just, you just have to be with the pure experience. Whereas Saguna, now you're going to try to give it some attributes. Mm. But but in that attributeless um, aspect, we're just here being like, and that's where the palpable, the silence, like, don't even try to flip off into a name. Like, you can't even call it silence, though, because there's nothing that's not silence, right? So it's just, it's impossible to talk about it. As soon as we talk about it, it makes it, would you say, saguna? <laughs> yeah. So with with 
qualities or whatever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So if we get to the point where we go, I had this experience, I I don't even know how to start describing it. It's like, oh yeah, that's it. (laughs) (laughs) You can start describing it. Like I felt this and I, it's like, "Mm, okay, that's still Saguna. It's not quite there. (laughs) I don't know. But um, okay. So I think I have a little better understanding of maybe where Jung was was coming from um, and actually a little more appreciation for him just, um, you know, in his limitation, understanding where that uh, that reluctance to totally give everything up, maybe where that comes from. Like, I think it's really founded in something that um, I can honor, uh, you know, especially if he had like a mental health crisis. Uh, I can completely understand why he would want to maintain a, a foundation that was familiar and felt stable to him. You know, that being his, um, his Christian upbringing. Um, but I guess after all of your, your work and your, your scholarship, and then also being a practitioner, I'm wondering what you think yoga can learn from Western psychology and maybe more specifically Jung and depth psychology. Is there anything that yoga can gain, like especially as Western yogis? Again, another great question, because a lot of Westerners, you know, there's YouTube and, um, you know, this material, the teachings of yoga is uh, very accessible. Now, Eastern teachers brought up in their own culture, you know, specifically India, in their own country, they don't have experience of, let's say, what the Western mind has evolved to. And I'm going to use a specific example of that, which is pretty, can we say, rampant narcissistic tendencies or rampant narcissism. There's Because ego psychology... Um, or, or psychology of both ego psychology and the psychology of the ego became so prevalent in the West. This idea of a separate self um, is rife in, in in our culture, and we don't. We are born also into a dualistic lens. Science and religion are fractured. Within science, the subject and object are split. So like everywhere we turn with the Western mind, we're working with splits or seeing. Psychology and and biology, like the mind-body split, and even there on that fundamental level. Exactly. And I'm not clear if the Eastern teachers see the enormity of what Westerners are born into as far as all those splits go. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's, it, it would be that understanding. I, I, I think it's very new for us to be blending the West and the East as practitioners, as doctors, as healers. I mean, yeah, sure, it's been happening in the last hundred years, but, you know, we're still integrating it and we're we're still doing it. I would invite the Eastern scholars to, to do their part also to really understand how many splits we're looking through and, um, to try to also see if they can accommodate that, in a more modern way 
as they're teaching us yoga, in other words. Mm. You know, in, in that respect, where Jung, where Jung was saying, we can't just take on these Eastern teachings. He's both correct and incorrect there. Those teachings are genius, and they're so logically consistent. We have nothing like it, as far as I know, in Western psychology. Nothing like it. However, to speak to thou, that multiple level, level of fracturedness, those deep narcissistic tendencies and the narcissistic wounds that have now just mushroomed from generation to generation to generation, you know, as, as Westerners importing this Eastern psychology, the blend to, to me is in there. I hope I'm answering your question correctly. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about it like it's like trying to install Apple software on a Windows machine. It's just not going to go in. So you got to make sure that you are on the same operating system like fundamentally to install the software, which is the, the theology or the philosophy. Um, Bingo. Bingo. Which is why in my own work, I'm, I'm inviting uh, the Western canon to, 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 you know, pure consciousness is strikingly absent in all of Western thought. We need that same ground. We need the same playing field. It's, it's critically important for sure. Yeah. And what do you think psychology has to learn from yoga? I think you probably touched on it in um, healing that, that split. And I think that's happening more and more in, in psychology and psychotherapy is uh, people are acknowledging the mind-body connection more and more. But do you think that split still exists? Oh, I think a lot of the splits that we just mentioned very much still exist. I mean, in the realm of consciousness studies, there's work to merge science and religion again, but that 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 rift is still very much prevalent in the in neuroscience, cognitive neuroscience. You can see that rift very much between the mind and body because um, consciousness is an epiphenomena. It's 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 coming off of brain processes, although they have, uh, you know, neuroscientists who subscribe to that view have no way of explaining how that happens. Um, the, you yeah. know, the subject-object split in, in orthodox science is just, is very, very prevalent, for sure. Yeah, you're reminding me actually now, um, even people like uh, Sam Harris, who have gotten incredibly popular, what he seems to have done is is taken... Buddhism and secularized it and actually split it in the Western way, uh, not acknowledging that absolute ground of consciousness. I think he's still in the, the mode of thinking that consciousness is a function of the biology or something. But what, right. I, what I often hear him is resistant to that idea of absolute or pure consciousness right and and you know to be fair uh, mainstream buddhism can be co-opted in that way because consciousness through that lens does flicker on and off the five skandhas like it's there is no absolute and enduring uh, consciousness that's mainstream buddhism once you get to mahayana buddhism and the tathagatagarbha texts that absolutism absolutely comes back in Mm. and 
you know, if, if Sam Harris were to ever listen to this podcast, I'd like to invite him to look at the extent of those teachings because he does have such a huge voice. And I, I think he is somebody that is really interested in, in knowing and bringing truth about, but this understanding of just how fractured and split our lenses over and over and over again, we, we need to come together as a culture almost and acknowledge that through, if we could, you know, maybe through all the disciplines, but certainly in, in psychology. Mm-hmm. And I guess maybe the last question I have is, okay, so we're, we're talking about consciousness, capital C consciousness, and these talks can get kind of heady, I think, and, and kind of out there. I'm just wondering, because I know that you're a transformational coach and you've done a lot of work in psychology and psychotherapy. I'm wondering, how do you think that an experience of pure consciousness can benefit the everyday person, not maybe the person who is actively you know, pursuing a, a spiritual path, everyday people who are suffering from stress and anxiety and depression, how do you think one of these experiences can actually help them? Um, I'd like to approach that actually from a slightly different angle, which would be how could the culture help alleviate what is now become a prolific amount of anxiety and stress and suicidal ideation. And, and again, it's the culture has to look at itself. How is the culture setting it up so the people, so the well-being isn't inherent and um, that everybody or everybody, you know, a, a mass amount of people are having these um, very distressful experiences so if the culture can present a worldview that allows for well-being and allows for healing, I think the, the, the citizens and the people that grow up within that culture have a much greater chance of, of thriving within that field because they're not looking for it from the outside. It's, it, I mean, as true nature, you and I know, I mean, it is a given. But if the culture is very, really fractured, then the souls, the beings aren't born into the culture feeling that security, feeling that unity, feeling that wholeness. And then they must run off to seek it eventually right? If they hit certain walls or, you know, the anxiety and the stress gets overwhelming, then they look for yoga and meditation. Well, and going back to that, that fundamental thing that we talked about earlier, the idea that, that you and me are God and that relating to a, a, a sense of self-worth, right? When, when that's absent, it creates a lot of problems in, in the personality. Um, but I, I guess like the big problem that I see is that the culture doesn't exist independently of the people within it. So when you say the culture has to bring these things to the people, how does that happen? Because the way I see it 
it's the people are creating the culture. And, you know, it's the culture that we're going to hand down to future generations, but we're actually the ones creating it. There isn't like the culture is not uh, in some building in, in Manhattan and they're, they're creating it. Although, you know, <clears throat> parts of the culture are being created by people in Manhattan and in Hollywood and, and all of that. Right. But my point is that we can't rely on someone else to change the culture. And, and, and very true. And the culture can be, let's say, wrapped up in structures of power that are very hard to break open. So let's just stick with orthodox science for a minute in this idea that there is a radical subject-object split. Now, there's lots of voices coming in from the margins, whether it be in the field of parapsychology or just other you know, scientists working more qualitatively who are saying, hey, no, that the split isn't as radical. But we, we could still say, as far as the ivory tower goes, that subject-object divide it's pretty wrapped up in that th those centers of power and the voices are coming in from the margins to say, Hey, we need to look a little differently. So it is, it's an evolution for sure over time where this is occurring and everybody, like you're saying, it has to do their part. If, if, if it is to change. Mm. Yeah. And I, I just want to give a shout out to, someone that I'm training with right now, Gabor Mate, who uh, is, I think, important because he isn't a marginalized person. He's someone who's quite well-respected. He was a physician for many years working on uh, in Vancouver's East Side, which is full of really hardcore drug addicts. Like He was working on the front lines for so many years. He's not from the ivory tower, although he does have you know, the credentials being someone who's been a, a family physician. Um, and what he's doing is talking a lot about the, the way that people are trained in, in Western medicine, this mind body split and looking to, to heal that and bring more light to that, that the mind and body are inseparable. And uh, yeah, I think he's a really important figure right now because he's not kind of coming from like a woo woo spiritual tradition or something He's like, no, he's a really well-respected guy who's been on the front lines working with people in real despair. And he's the one who's talking about a lot of the things that, that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, he's an amazing teacher. Yeah, but I think just like an important cultural figure as well. And I know his book uh, that should be coming out soon, he's been talking about it for a couple of years, but it's going to be focused on society and about healing society or maybe we could even say culture but uh really looking at that as fundamentally something that has to change in order for individuals to thrive more right it, it, exactly and we, we you know we want to fund the studies to to see you know how, how why is that anxiety so prolific right now because if it if predatory capitalism is is feeding let's say a discomfort and and you know we're born and bred into that ideology then something has to shift there because again if the money is going to fund big pharma when 
see how, how what a loop that can be? The money is funding Big Pharma. Big Pharma trades on Wall Street by giving people drugs. They have, you know, they're just going to accumulate more cash, and they don't really have a reason to want to look into the ideology that may be causing the suffering to begin with. Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? Because the funding isn't going to look at the ideology. It's going to um, look at brain science, where exactly where Gabor, I believe, is pointing towards. He's saying the mind and body aren't split. You can't take people out of the culture either. However, a lot of the funding is going just towards how do these medicines alleviate anxiety mm-hmm. without looking at all, again, to that um, embeddedness between big pharma predatory capitalism and what the agenda might be to, to not study the bigger picture. Yeah. And not look at healing the root cause. Right. It, right. And if we don't heal the root cause, then we're just going to keep spinning in the same samskaras, the same cultural complexes. And the next generations are just going to keep spinning there. So do you think that Avidya, this, ignorance of our true nature do you think that is the root cause to all the common problems that people are suffering from these days i would say that yes i mean to me and you could say perhaps it's because i had the pure consciousness event but that event didn't eradicate um, all the splits instantaneously. You know, I have studied now for 15, 18 years t- to look at all these splits within the Western culture. And from no point of view can I find a level of healing that would come about by eradicating that major split between us and the ground. To be comfortable in a body on earth, to, to, that we, we are held in this field of pure consciousness, that we are pure consciousness, and everything all phenomena, you know, arise from there. Um, you know, avidya, the definition is not wisdom, not pure vision. Mm-hmm. So cleaning up the vision, taking the distortions from the lens. Tajani really doesn't have a term for the unconscious. He uses the term avidya. And and to me, that's really symbolic, again, and why it's very logically consistent. In my research, I found another researcher who had found um, five instances of the term the unconscious in the Rig Veda. And from there, that term pretty much gets stricken out out of the language. This term, you know, avidya is one uh, that arises and obviously is used by Patanjali. And to remain consistent with that idea that the reality of being is pure consciousness, we need to purify the vision and gain the wisdom and root into the ground. And from there, we're able to be from a place that eradicates suffering. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and like you said, to relax into our bodies, relax into our lives, and how that helps us relax in our relationships with others and, and just um, dissolve so much conflict. You know, all of the, the splits that happen within our culture, interpersonally, on a national level, in race, in gender, we're seeing so much splitting these days. I'm always reminded of um, what Jay Krishnamurti said about any form of identity, you know, whether that's... Um, race, 
religion, nationality, is a form of violence, actually. Looking at what it always leads to, you know, whether that's um, verbal violence, aggression, or actual physical violence on the personal and the national scale. Mm. Yeah. Because so, that bindedness, right? I mean, now in that identity, there's a construct and there's a bind. And then the, the flow ceases. Because mm -hmm. we're named as white, as male, as engineer. Whatever, whatever we bind around and lock identity on is going to inhibit the flow of, quote unquote, purity. Because the mm -hmm. identity if we could use that word, but maybe very loosely, is the root, the ground in pure consciousness. Mm, which is always flowing and diverse and inclusive and all of those things. Right. And I think that's really what it's about for me is, yeah, it's great to have these experiences and that it gives you a different perspective on your kind of everyday troubles. Uh, it can and it can give you a nice detachment from those so that you're actually able to deal with them and not get so overwhelmed by them, you know, whether that's everyday stress or anxiety or, or whatever. So I think that's very helpful. But I think the most important thing and the thing for lasting change on a personal and global level is to then integrate that experience into your relating with others. And that's really the end of the road for me. It, you know, it's something that my teacher's teacher, Desikachara, would always say is yoga is relationship. And so it's going to that non-dual space and having that realization and that experience and then coming back into relatedness and integrating that new understanding and that larger perspective into how we relate to each other. And that just helps us relax and be more open and receptive you know, we're not holding on to our ideas and our and our identity so much. We're able to be a little more porous and fluid and allow other people to be a little more free and, and fluid. Yeah, beautiful vision. And to, to me, that's where the universalizing potential of yoga comes in here. It, it is being able to see behind all the constructs and, you know, feel good, like you're saying, uh, take off the outer layers of stress and, and, and relate from, could we call it a more holistic place, a more open place? And as we watch those relationships develop, um, you know, we gain more, more confidence and, and uh, more desire to continue with the practice. Mm. And, and then it's continuing to go, I, I'm going to say go deeper and deeper into that cultural noise floor because the way the culture, the way I see it anyway, the way that it's set up now, racism serves certain elements of the status quo or again, I'll refer to it as predatory capitalism. So there's some, let's say people in power or aspects of power who might not want to see those splits healed because they can use it to their advantage. And so as a collective, we must become very, very aware, again, of the depth of the 
the cultural constructs and the cultural ideologies that we're embedded in. We have to see below all of them. And once again, that's where Jung met his limitations. But we can see, perhaps we could say the world is even more fractured than in Jung's day now, especially if the environmental concerns are as you know grave as some of some people paint them as. So we, we want to make sure that we as Westerners continue to look deeper and deeper into those cultural ideologies. Hmm. Yeah, I'm really glad we ended up here because one of the limitations that I actually see in um, Patanjali and the Yoga Sutra is the what next chapter, like chapter five, like what happens after liberation. And that to me is the most important thing. And something that I don't hear talked about enough, especially from kind of more uh, scholarly types. You know, I think on the ground in yoga studios and meditation centers, people are talking about this more and more. Like, what are we doing this practice for? You know, is it just so that we can feel better and we can become enlightened and think really highly of ourselves and become teachers or something? Um, Or is it to create this cultural societal change from the ground up, you know, having these awakenings to reality and then going to work the next day and relating to your coworkers differently, you know, pushing for changes in the city or the nation, wherever you can, you know, voting in a certain way, making certain choices in your consumerism, all of those things. So, yeah. That's, I think that's really important, and it's something that potentially never gets to. Right, but now, through my lens, that's also the genius of the text, because, so kaivalya, which means to rest upon oneself, you know, the aloneness, so therefore, we're, now we're in the non-dual aspects of it. He, so, th- that's almost how his psychology can transcend epics, because he doesn't know what's going on necessarily. As psychic as he was and in cosmic mind, right, to be able to even write it and to, to um, let's say, place the human mind within the cosmic mind. But now he's not going to name anything because, yes. right? I'm That's with you. the sheer genius of it. Now it's that true. you're absorbed, now that you're resting upon yourself, now what? Well, what's it? What's present? What's now? Yeah. No, you're totally right. And that is part of the brilliance of it is that it's just so open. And that's one of the things that uh, allows it to be timeless and still relevant 2,500 years later. But I guess maybe the important thing is, is to have a teacher like yourself who is very much of the modern world and integrated into modern life. You're not living in an ashram. You're living in California. um, I don't know, in the city somewhere, I'm guessing. Um, and so you're able to put those teachings in that modern context that's relevant to the people you're teaching to. And then you can talk about the, how does this relate to my everyday life and my relationships? And I think that's kind of how the text was meant to be used is like a, a course syllabus that had to be expanded on with a teacher in that, in that interpersonal relationship where the teacher knows what's going on in your life and he can say, oh, this sutra, you know, think about this, how it's happening in your life right now. That's the way Deskachar always taught it. You know, it had to be relevant to the student. And we couldn't just kind of deliver the teachings from a platform, you know, and talk about it in a, in a way that was 
outside of our everyday life. Like it has to be relevant. Otherwise it's meaningless. Right. Right. And it is, you know, as a lot of people open up the yoga sutras and they're like, what, what is this guy saying? Because it, 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 it is so tight and so compact, but really when it is unpacked, it is extraordinarily practical. And it does, it, it has a lot of relevance. He speaks to anxiety in the body. He speaks to why stages of yoga aren't quote unquote being a, attained. And then r- right following that sutra, he speaks to what shows up in the body if these states of yoga aren't attained. And he speaks to anxiety and depression and sorrow. And oh my gosh, we are immersed in anxiety, depression, and sorrow. So he he is absolutely for our time. And, you know, he speaks to contentment. And boy, if there's anything a lot of Westerners aren't, it's content. (laughs) You know, this constant run towards an image, towards more phenomena, um, you know, towards greater economic status. So he there's there's so many threads, if you will, of his psychology that are so relevant today. Can he, does he speak to, again, this, um, this real tight bind that I see the West in as far as this separate self? I mean, he, he speaks to it. He, he, in chapter two, he, he says, look, if you appropriate consciousness, you know, that, that, what is it? Two point six, where he, he talks about ego consciousness. If you appropriate consciousness now, now you're really headed towards a path of distortion, so to speak, or suffering. Um, what, what do you mean by appropriate consciousness? Grab it, steal it. It's mine. I'm the thinker. I'm the knower. My vehicle of perception. Is, is you know has knowledge in it. it is used through rational thought but to take ownership of it is a bind right. it's immediately going to block the flow yeah, and I, I you know we find that in the bhagavad-gita as well right the selfless service like like or the upanishads i mean that 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 idea of selfless action or self selflessness is very big teaching throughout the upanishadic tradition yeah, you have the right to your work, but not to the fruits of your work, something like that. Like what you can do is actually um, bring more awareness and intention to the work that you're doing, but don't uh, anticipate any reward for it. Just do your work as as best you can with as much attention and skill, like skillfulness and action. But don't get hung up on what you're going to get back from it. Right. Yeah, right. that's a Which is that's very... a tough one for people. <laughs> it's like, I want to well, get paid. <laughs> it, it, it's very different from what we're used to. Yeah. We're used to, you know, building up towards greater and greater accolades, greater and greater stature within a culture. And well, it's a it's a term that's been appropriated by so many yoga studios. You know, they they have like what they call karma programs, um, where someone will go and and clean the floors and they'll get a free membership. But that's not selfless service. That's not real karma yoga. You're getting paid for your work. You're getting your membership to that yoga studio 
you know, it's probably more of an exploitation of the worker on, on the part of the yoga studios, you know, who are getting people to <laughs> do all the dirty work and then letting them into class for, for quote unquote free. Um, yeah. But I think that's like a tough one for, for us in the West, you know, in a, in a capitalist society to really wrap our heads around um, is the idea of selfless service of just doing the work as best you can and, and trust that you will be provided for. Oh, it's extraordinarily hard for us to wrap our, it goes against everything that we're being taught or being ushered towards in a, a capitalistic society. Yet we can see the ravages of materialism, like extreme materialism and predatory capitalism go hand in hand. And, you know, um, to turn a blind eye to it at this point, I've lost words for it. Like, it's, it's, like, not, you know, it's not going to get us out of the mess. You know, right. we've, got, we've got to deal with it and we've got to really confront it and we've got to try and see things clearly as we talked about. It's like remove the coverings over our eyes and really take a look at things and, and be honest with ourselves. What is the cause of the suffering right now? And not just to medicate it, you know, not just to deal right. with the symptoms. Right. And calling I, I, the yoga studios to that level of seeing don't co-opt the practice because you'll find articles in the wall street journal or fortune magazine yoga and meditation now a six billion dollar industry it, it, it at every turn because we are so embedded in the ideology of predatory capitalism we will co-opt anything for our own purposes to feed that system and you know, it, maybe if this podcast could do, if, if, I don't know who listens to your podcast per se, but just a shout out to yoga studios and yoga studio owners to, to really get into the depth of the practice. And again, the idea of pure vision and wisdom and clear seeing, let's not co-opt it for Western purposes. Let's, let's utilize its methodologies to purify our vision so the depth of healing can come about. Equating well-being with monetary capital has been one of the greatest ravages to the human being. Well-being is our birthright. Mm. Lack of stress, contentment, um, you know, nonviolence, just... Uh, again, existing, absorbed in that field, it, it, uh, that field of pure consciousness is, is our birthright. And if we co-opt the practices to serve, um, what do I want to say, like the advertising culture that puts well-being more, again, towards monetary gain, right? In, in some ways we could say, what capitalism does, it takes worth away from you and sells it back to you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, it, and it feeds into that whole feeling of lack that so many people have, that they're, they're lacking wellness, that actually they're not clear that it's, it's their, like you said, birthright, and that they have something they have to buy. And it seems to be something for the, uh, for rich white ladies from LA that, you know, it's kind of made for them. Um, 
And really, we don't need anything to be well and to feel whole and empowered. We don't need anything. It's inherent in us. We just maybe need to drop some of that, those ideas that have been, um, cult, well, I'm not sure what the right word is, but we've been conditioned to believe about ourselves. Right. Very, very true. And, and hopefully, you know, like we're saying that the yoga studios um, present, present that given. They won't because it's bad for business. And this is something I've run up against as a yoga teacher um, because I'm unwilling to compromise that belief that we are just fine as, as is. And what I try to do is just empower people with their own yoga practice. So hopefully they won't need me, you know. They might want to come back to me in a couple months and check in because I'm a friend and they want to talk about what's going on, but they don't need me to guide them through a practice whenever they want to do it. It's like actually teach someone how to practice yoga so they've got it and they've got a way to take care of themselves and return to baseline consciousness and all of that good stuff. Return to that inherent state of wellness and not keep charging them for it. And you know, that's not how a studio, yoga studio could survive. They need people to keep coming back and they need to create new offerings so that it's feeding into that idea of like, oh, here's another level of training that I need or here's another workshop that I need or more techniques, more mantras, more and more and more and more and more. It's like you got to just keep people coming back. Otherwise, you can't pay the rent. So I think like the right. whole the whole model from the beginning was a co-opting and a, a corruption of actually what yoga is all about. And I think it's like time to just chuck it, you know? Yeah. I mean, everything that you just said, uh, brilliantly well done. And it just speaks to so many things that we have already talked about. Again, it, it, it dead ends into the cultural piece. It, yeah. it, it isn't going below the ideologies of capitalism. It's feeding off of it. And in every way that pure seeing is meant to go below any kind of constructs. Yeah. And I think like, you know, going back to what we talked about earlier, it's like once you've had that experience yourself, there's no going back. There's no way that you're going to make those same compromises anymore. So it kind of ruins you for that system. You know, my, my friend Danny Paradise, he's a yoga teacher, but he said something like, the more you practice yoga, the more unemployable you become. And I think the more, the, the less of a capitalist you become too. So then as someone who wants to teach yoga as a living, it's like, okay, well, what can I do? I can teach it in my home, in community centers, in places that aren't embedded in this um, would you call it predatory capitalist system? <laughs> I've never heard that before, but I really like the fieriness of that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we are so embedded in it. And like you're saying in LA classes are 25 bucks oh, a pop. I mean, yeah. Not everybody can afford that. Those classes aren't for everybody. They're for a specific 
well-to-do set of people. And hey, look, M- Montreal is more of a working-class city, and the yoga classes are still twenty-five, sometimes twenty-eight dollars for an hour-long vinyasa class with you know forty people in there. It's like, who's that for? I can't afford it. You know, not that I really want to go to yoga classes because I've got my own yoga and I really love it and it really works for me. (laughs) But sometimes it's nice to be around other people, you know, but it's like I can't even afford to go to a yoga class myself. (laughs) Yeah, they're, they're, they're extremely pricey for sure. Yeah. So I want to take, bring yoga back to the people and, uh, I don't know. How do we wrap this up? I mean, we've gone from Jung and Patanjali to talking about the state of uh, yoga in North America. (laughs) But there is a through line there because, again, where Jung couldn't see below the culture, we're still at that place. I see a through line in it for sure. Where, 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 but again, the, uh, what we could say one of the brilliances of it, and I know we mentioned it before, he, he was saying, don't just co-opt these practices. Don't just come take it on and wear the white robe and think you're doing yoga. So he gave the warning out loud. And I think you and I are saying the same thing. Like we can, these, these practices for, for you and I are both so sacred and so true. You know, the shout out is we, let's not co-op these let's see them in their purity for what they can offer because they can offer us to see below what i'm calling the noise floor the culture that's so embedded that we're born into but yet is very fractured uh ways of looking at the world we need to see below that and find a different paradigm from which we can all thrive and have a well true well-being yeah. Thanks for finding that three line. That was really helpful. <laughs> and I think you're right on the money. And I just want to propose that where Jung said that a Western yoga needs to be based on Christianity, I think he may have been too close to it to see the real answer, but I'd like to propose that Western yoga needs its foundation in an understanding of Western psychology rather than Sankhya or some other Indian system. And I'm going to add to that after this conversation, I'm inspired to say it needs its foundation in Western psychology and maybe also social activism. And that's a real Western yoga that will liberate us and and liberate our culture. Sounds good. Okay. Well, to that end, I'm going to recommend that people take your Yoga Sutra study course um, do you do you do that continually? After this one, will there be a next one? I do have one set up, I believe, in April, and then I'll hold it again in the fall, though I don't have those dates set up yet. But uh, on my uh, events page of my website, which is leannewhitney.com, I already do have, I believe it's April into May, set up, yeah. Great. Yeah, I'd highly recommend that to anybody interested in um, this intersection of yoga and psychology, or even just somebody wanting to understand how the yoga sutras can uh, help you in your life. Because Leanne makes it incredibly relatable. And, you know, I've been studying it for a number of years with different teachers. And it's, it's like, it's, uh, I don't know, breathing new life into the sutras for me right now. Uh, And it's really got me kind of 
excited about them again. And also at the same time, like really reaffirmed that there's something just, there's like real timeless, usable, practical wisdom here. It's not just lofty stuff for yoga scholars. Um, it's for real people. It really is. Um, and do you have anything else coming up that you want to promote or point people toward? I will be developing some workshops on actually introduction to Jung in Jungian psychology this year. And um, what else do I have? Uh Soul Restoration for Community Reformation. I'm setting mm. up at the end of this year and through next year. It will be online right around the uh, equinoxes and the solstices where we'll come together in community, actually for the reason you pointed towards, for social action. Great. So I, great, I'm developing that now. I have the date set, but I'm still developing the program. And mm. that will, so that will come up um, at uh, the winter solstice of 2019 and run through 2020. So I'm very excited about that. And then yeah. I work one-on-one -on -one with people like I, be I believe you do. Um, I, I work as a transformational coach and help people one-on-one, -on -one, you know, outside of the, the studio setting. Yeah. And what would you say that your main goal is when working with people as a transformational coach? all relation-based. So it's whether it's someone's relationship to themselves or with their partner or a child or with their job or with the society. It's the, it's the transformation of the places that are, are blocked or there's, there's stuckness um, over perhaps an experience that happened in the past or block that they can't even see yet. So we work through those blockages, whether they be mental, emotional, spiritual, physical, because I, um, I bring craniosacral therapy in for clients who see me in person. Um, so again, that authentic self that's already there, it's not something that they seek for, but we just work to uncover it. So we transform whatever, the, wherever, whatever aspects of the relational area have blocks. So the authentic self has a chance to come forward and thrive. Mm, I love it. Well, thanks so much for uh, taking this time with me. It's been uh, a really rich conversation. And uh, yeah, I was nervous at the beginning, but uh, I think I did okay. And I think um, I didn't get too lost in all of the psychological talks. So thanks so much for making it clear and uh, help me understand a little bit more. Uh, well, th thank you so much for inviting me. I'm so glad that our paths have crossed. And I, I definitely know I can, I mean, I'm in the world of scholarship, so I can take that trip into the scholarly <laughs> realms for sure. But my aim really is to make it as practical as possible. So I, I appreciate that feedback. I'm glad we could. Thanks for hanging with me <laughs> and, and doing the totality of the journey. I appreciate it. <laughs> All right, Leanne. Well, I uh, hope to talk to you soon. Well, I'll see you online for our study group. That's right. I'll see you on Tuesday morning. <laughs> okay. Take care. All right. Have a great afternoon. If you enjoyed this conversation, please consider supporting the podcast. And there are a number of ways that you can do that. You can leave a positive review on iTunes. You can share with your friends on social media. Or you can become a Patreon supporter, where for only $5 a month, you'll gain access to podcast extras and hours of resources designed to support your home yoga practice. Or you can leave a one-time donation via PayPal. 
This podcast is supported solely by the generosity of listeners like you. So if you'd like to help keep it going, please visit medicinepathpodcast.com forward slash support. Another way to support the podcast is to book an online yoga consultation, coaching session, or plant medicine integration session with me. You can find out more about all my offerings at medicinepathhealingarts.com. Well, thanks so much for listening. I wish you peace, love, and all good things until next time we meet on The Medicine Path. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.